This episode is based on and inspired by a true story. Some personal details have been changed, removed, or added using creative liberty to protect the anonymity of the patients and therapists. The medical interventions and scientific backing have not been altered to the best of this author's ability and are based on the current scholarly literature. Please visit the website, chasingot.com, and take this short 14-question survey after listening as a way to support my doctoral capstone project and further research. The sun was pleasant and welcoming on his face. Seabirds, conversing with one another in an argument that never seemed to end, suspend themselves overhead. The familiar salty and sweet odors of the ocean fill his nose from one of the well-known jagged outcrops he usually fishes. His toes subconsciously move around the sand that collects itself in sparse amounts on the familiar rocks. If you were to catch a fish, it would be here. Recently, he's had the most luck catching anything at this location. Mist from the occasional big wave cools him, while his shoes, elevated nearby, dry off and warm in the ultraviolet sunlight. Oh! The air swishes as he jerks his makeshift fishing pole into the air. Was that a bite, or did I get snagged on something again? He thinks to himself. He looks at the tip of the long, sturdy stick he found roadside a few months back as he strips the old, tattered line. He uses salvaged monofilament that surpassed the manufacturer quality tests long ago. The end of the line flutters in the wind like it's being handled by an Olympic ribbon dancer. His shoulders slump. He lets out a deep sigh. His stomach growls as he pulls the wisp of old fishing gear towards him. Once he has the line in hand, he reaches carefully into his breast pocket where he keeps the assortment of safety pins, filed down paper clips, and anything else he could fashion into a fishing hook. His angler equipment may not be the standard vision of what most people think of when they think of fishing, but it's worked well enough and provided him with meals at times when he wasn't sure if he could make it another day. Damn, he instinctively thought as his fingers methodically searched the bottom and corners of his shirt pocket for the makeshift tackle. No more hooks. His stomach grumbles, almost on cue. He looks up at the sky and then down to his old watch with the chipped face and frayed band. About an hour or so of sunlight left, he estimates. It's about a 16-minute walk to the pickup location for the public transportation system he can afford, and the next departure is in 22 minutes. It'll be close, he thinks out loud to no one. Luckily, he didn't have much to pack up. He walks over to his shoes, sits on the adjacent rock, and brushes sand off the bottom of his feet before lacing up his character-rich sneakers. With feet protected, his fishing pole on his shoulder, and a talkative stomach, he heads east to the station. He is in somewhat of a rush, not just because of the pressing time frame to make the next departure, but because he hopes he can get back to his campsite before anything is stolen, or he gets fined for not paying last night's camping fee. He wasn't a bad person. He would pay for a campsite if anyone ever asked him to, but when he was fishless and it was between paying for a place to sleep or food, his gut always made the easy decision for him. He is homeless. Since he didn't have any substance issues, the choice between food and shelter was usually pretty straightforward. He has anxiety about people taking what little he had, or worse, robbing and beating him during the night. It wasn't a necessity, but any campsite was better than the dark concrete corners around the city he had utilized as makeshift motels in the past. Currently, his meager belongings were where he left them last night. He's keen to get back there before someone else declares a jackpot and makes off with his change of clothes and bedding. There, the station. He sees the platform where he can grab the next ride from across the street. It's still there. The public transportation he needs is stationary and accepting passengers. A sigh of relief and sense of calmness wash over his body. He'd be hungry tonight, but he would make it home just fine. 
He focuses across the street at the people in line and starts counting how many were waiting to board. One, two, three, he mouths silently to himself as he sets off across the street towards the station. At that moment, pandemonium breaks out. Unfortunately, all the man hears before the car's bumper connects with his body is... He is deaf, and now the victim of a hit and run. Chaos ensues. A handful of civilians take action. Someone rushes to call first responders. Minutes later, he stares up at the same sky he had become acquainted with not even an hour ago. Gurney straps tighten around his body and he closes his eyes in an uncontrollable wince of pain. A furrowed brow and bare teeth accompany him into the ambulance. As the team of professionals work, the familiar mosaic of clouds is replaced in his field of vision by unfamiliar faces. He sees the paramedics talking to him, asking him questions, trying to do on-the-fly evaluations to assess what damage was done. But he can't answer. He's confused, in pain, and is not great at reading lips. He continues to stare at the strange faces while he drifts in and out of consciousness. None of it makes sense to him yet. They arrive at a nearby hospital and begin the process of stabilizing the man. He receives a broken tibia and fibula with minor spinal injuries for his efforts to cross the street that day. His 40-year-old bones ache with the pain of fresh trauma while his psyche takes on a whole new set of stressors. All things considered, with proper medical care and rehab, he will be fine in time. He had been born deaf, but was still uneasy with its social complexities. It was a daily task to do everything he could to ensure nobody found out about his impairment. As a child, he had tested out cochlear implants to restore his hearing, but that was an unfortunate failure. He harbored a subconscious discontent with doctors after that experience, a discomfort and untrustworthiness that would perpetuate itself into his adulthood. His mother had always been supportive while she was alive. She learned and taught him ASL or American Sign Language. His father was present, but less involved with his son. He refused to be educated on ASL or try other forms of communication. This created a barrier in their relationship that would spread itself into this story and beyond. His sister, who is currently living in another state like his father, did not speak with him much. This was due to the difficulty that came along with that activity. Apart from the people in his book club who also used ASL, the man had nobody else to communicate with and was alone. It was the age before FaceTime and other technological advances made nonverbal communication over distance not only possible, but preferred. After the initial medical stabilization and hospital discharge, the man found himself in a skilled nursing facility, or SNF for short. There he received additional rehabilitation, occupational therapy, being part of that care plan. The OT on staff was bright-eyed and newly licensed. It could be argued that the most important aspect about her was that what she lacked in experience, she made up for in spades by knowing ASL, a skill that would prove a priceless commodity for working with this patient in particular. She often found herself prepping the man before his doctor's visits and then debriefing and processing the information with him after the doctor had gone. Her transition into becoming the primary communication lifeline between the patient and his healthcare team was solidified almost instantaneously. She would act as the main translator for the man, and through that, 
develop a deep connection with his psychosocial need and desire to communicate with others. The OT reviews his chart and begins their first therapy session by asking him questions about himself. She slowly gains a better understanding of who the man is and what he needs from his care team. It is apparent to the OT that the man could use help outside of the recovery from his broken leg. She recounts her initial interaction with the man. Looking at him on paper, he had a physical limitation and that's why he was here, here at the SNF. Um, looking at him as a person, he had so many other things happening. He receives some light education from the OT before she leaves on his injury and the restrictions that he needs to follow. A sense of excitement connects the two. The man, because he finally found someone that he can communicate with, and the OT, because she's finally able to use all of her knowledge unsupervised in practice. Taking into account his new level of functionality, the OT begins her interventions by ensuring the man can safely and independently complete his ADLs, or activities of daily living. These are tasks such as dressing, feeding, or bathing oneself. He realizes very quickly that he takes for granted or does not think about any of these actions during a normal day. He's happy and grateful for the care the OT is providing. They work through his ADLs with the OT providing different techniques, tips, and methods to improve his competency with each task. This is done until the man demonstrates his ability to complete each activity to the OT's satisfaction. Now that the basics are covered, the OT begins working with the man on other aspects of his life that he has expressed having concerns about. She helps him communicate with his social worker to obtain Section 8 housing, his fears and the stress around sleeping outside, vulnerable to the elements and unsavory characters, are now gone. The OT assists him while he works on a resume. He has a plan to obtain gainful employment for the first time in decades and is overtly excited about the prospect. She acts as a medium for a phone conversation between the man and his father, allowing them to connect and communicate with one another effectively for the first time since the man had moved to a new state years ago. These calls don't always go according to plan, as evidenced by the failed attempt to connect with his sister but it was important to him that he try. The adaptive equipment the OT and the man use on the phone is also a misfire. The man refuses to use any adaptive equipment the OT recommends. The only exception is for mobility aids such as walkers and canes during his recovery. His reasoning? I'm not gonna have any of this equipment in the real world once I leave the hospital, so why learn to live with it now? I need to learn to live as I will when I leave. Taking this into account, the OT begins focusing her interventions to incorporate compensatory techniques that involve no additional equipment. The man and the OT work on much more in the following months. Aspects such as financial planning, or going to a grocery store to see if he can interact and navigate around a real-world environment after he's been discharged. Naturally, heaps of education on how to reintegrate and stay safe while in the community are gone over at length. At discharge, the man goes to his newly acquired apartment for the first time with the OT in tow. She completes a home health evaluation to ensure the man will be safe living there and receive any modifications he may need. Neighbors are visited by the OT, and she gives them a heads up about the man's hearing impairment so as to make social interactions more effective and less anxiety producing. 100 days after he was violently surprised by a motor vehicle, the man is independent, living in a safe environment, and back to his baseline. He's gone from being bedridden to using a wheelchair, a walker, then a cane, and finally, nothing. The OT and the man share a misty-eyed farewell. They promise to stay in touch, and to this day, 
Roughly seven years later, the man and the OTs still write letters to one another. They plan to keep their line of communication open for the foreseeable future. There's no doubt that the medical team and OT in the story helped to improve the overall quality of this man's life. Some of the ways are more tangible or noticeable than others, such as the social worker helping him get Section 8 housing or the PT working on walking with the man. Sure, it is undeniable that the OT had a hand in these aspects as well, if only as a translator, but she also touched on something else, the patient's psychosocial factor of communication. He had a basic human desire and need to communicate with others regardless of his auditory barriers. In this instance, an occupational therapist played a role to bridge the gap between the man and the world around him. I will now take you through some of the science and reasoning behind what the OT did and why. When the OT was interviewed, she said the following. That's where I really focused on how important wellness is, um, and not just wellness of, you know, eat your greens and do your exercises. Um, but how's your sleeping, and what's your community like, and who is your support system, and what are your leisure activities throughout the week, and what makes you, what's enjoyable to you? This was evident in her initial conversation with the patient when she learned more about him. Next, her playing the interpreter for the patient when he met with other healthcare professionals. This was done for multiple reasons, one of which was to help him progress his care along and make it as easy as possible for the man to communicate with others. It made him feel important and valued by his medical team. It also helped him overcome his fear and feelings of intimidation when it came to interacting with doctors. These aspects that the OT addressed were aimed at fulfilling the man's psychosocial need for communication. The OT focused many of her daily therapeutic interventions to work in tandem with what the physical therapist was concentrating on as well. This ensured no overlap in treatment and allowed the therapist to work on multiple facets of the man's goals at once. The man's refusal to use the majority of adaptive equipment forced the OT to work on compensatory and remedial techniques to get the man to a targeted level of physical independence where he could live alone safely. This included strengthening exercises of the upper and lower extremities, trunk stability, and methods to reduce fatigue and improve his activity endurance. She also educated him on how to effectively employ his walking aids when he had them. Outside of the physical, the OT was able to help him critically think about and problem solve about other issues he had in his life. Together, they created a list of resources he could use after discharge if needed, and made a plan for his social and professional lives. They spent a lot of time on community reintegration and mobility, or living and moving around in the public. A study in 2006 by Jillian et al. showed that OT interventions positively impacted people who had a lower extremity joint replacement. They experienced improvements in their performance, satisfaction with their performance, and confidence related to community living skills. Although the man in the story did not have a joint replacement, the OT was still able to improve his feelings about and performance with community reintegration. He had an understandable fear of crossing the street after his accident, so educating him on safety and using those new skills in real-world situations was paramount. There were also sessions where they discussed ways to overcome his fears and apprehensions about going back out into the community. As the OT put it, Every part of my clinical judgment of why I'm providing what I'm providing is to improve his quality of life. Occupational therapy played a huge role in this patient's recovery and care, from helping him communicate with others to overcoming his barriers to physically move and interact with his environment. The OT targeted and impacted the entirety of his person. 
Our minds and bodies are inarguably connected. Both need to be functioning as well as they can for us to live as healthy as possible. Luckily, occupational therapists are skillfully trained and in a unique position to help address both aspects of recovery and life. The OT may have phrased it best. Aspect, and I think that there's so much to be said with how much we can provide for a patient from a holistic point of view. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is part of my doctoral capstone experience project and relies heavily on your participation. Please go to chasingot.com and take the extremely short 14-question podcast survey. This podcast is one in a limited series that looks at the major patient psychosocial themes that occupational therapists address across practice settings. These themes and sub-themes were identified through analyzing 14 interviews I conducted with 13 different OTs. This episode concentrates on the psychosocial theme of communication, which I define as a person's desire to converse with other people in multiple ways while overcoming the various communication barriers that may be present. If you are interested in more information about occupational therapy or my research into the psychosocial aspects covered in this series, please visit ChasingOT.com. Thank you again for listening to the podcast and taking my short survey. This is the Chasing OT Podcast.